Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome one and all to Storybox, the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning, growth, anyone to improve your life. My name is Jay Phantom and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I am truly grateful that you have decided to listen in today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Hey everyone, welcome back to Storybox Podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here today. If you have not heard my conversation with the number one life and business strategist, Tony Robbins, then make sure to go back now and listen to it. I guarantee you, you won't regret it. So who do we have on the Storybox today? My friends, we have a very special lady. Her name is Katie Morton. She holds a master's in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. If that gets you interested, this is going to be an amazing conversation. I guarantee you that. She runs a private practice in Santa Monica, California, and over the last eight years or so, Katie has leveraged social media to share mental health information worldwide through video. Her specialities include working with individuals experiencing eating disorders and self-harm behaviors, which we dive into in this episode, wait and see, although she addresses all things related to mental health as well. Katie is well known for her YouTube channel, which uh, touts a staggering 1 million subscriber base and has garnered well over 80 plus million views, which is honestly incredible. In addition to her YouTube channel and strong presence on social media, she has appeared on Good Morning uh, Good Day LA, sorry, morning show, and has showcased in Europe's highly circulated magazine, Glamour UK. She was also a 2019 Shorty Award finalist, as well as a 2019 and 2020 Streamy nominee. Katie's first book, Are You Okay? A Guide to Caring for Your Mental Health, was released in December 2018, became a bestseller. It is honestly an incredible book, and I highly encourage you guys to get your copy of it now. Katie's passion is to increase awareness about mental health. Her online community has expanded to all major internet platforms, allowing her to answer mental health questions from her followers around the world. She hopes by doing this, the global community can push for better services worldwide and remove the stigma associated with getting help. 
So like I mentioned in the very beginning, this is going to be a conversation that dives into mental health. So we talk about eating disorders, self-harming behaviors, why we have mental health in the first place. It is such an important conversation to be had, especially today with all the craziness that this world is really producing right now. How can we really uh, impact our, our, our minds in a positive way and Katie and I really address this in this conversation. So I know you guys are really going to love it. So that being said, my friends, please share this one around to anyone that you know. If you know somebody that is struggling with mental health issues, or even if you are struggling with mental health issues, I know we all struggle at different levels. I myself struggle sometimes. We're not immune to that, but we can get on board. We can share. We can help. And I hope th this conversation that I have with Katie is able to do that today uh, to a lot of you. Um, also, if you if you want to watch the full YouTube video, you can do that now. Just type it's in the show notes below. But also type in YouTube uh, the story box. You can find it there. Uh, make sure to also subscribe uh, to all the platforms. I really do appreciate it. And you guys know what time it is. It's my favorite time because we get to dive into the story box and hear the amazing story and advice and wisdom of Katie Morton. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. That was a very long intro. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I apologize for the, the long-winded, but I needed people to get everything that you are about really just in, in that little bit of an introduction. But I can't wait to dive further into your backstory and really ask you a ton of questions that I've had on my mind for quite some time. But mm -hmm. firstly, uh, I asked this question to all my guests at the very, very start, which is what does success look like to you? I think it changes a lot. Um, but when I started the channel, because I started my YouTube channel back in uh, 2011, I knew that if, if I'd helped successfully helped one person, then all the effort would be worth it. And I still stick by that a lot. I think the, especially being online, we can get caught up in the numbers or we can get caught up in pleasing everyone or any number of things. And I, I think sometimes I just have to remind myself, like just the other day I was going for a walk and I was like, I just need to remind myself of the people that I know I've positively impacted and really hold that because that's what is motivating to me and what's inspiring to me. And I think that that is the true measure of success. When was the moment for you in your life that you realized that everything you just described was success for you? Has it been this gradual thing over time that you sort of at different points you realized it or was there a catalyst moment somewhere? Hmm. There's been a few definite moments. Um, a couple of which, like speaking of Australia, we, my husband and I were fortunate enough to go to the uh, VidCon Australia in Melbourne back in, I want to say it was 2018. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet some fans, which I would have no way to meet them in person in any other without that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there were maybe 40 of them or so that came to the meet meetup. And that was really powerful to me. And I was like, wow, this is, this is wild because as a therapist who lives in Santa Monica, California, practices out here, there'd be no way for me to connect or assist people in Australia, right? It was just impossible. Um, 
And so I think that was one of those powerful moments where I was like, wow, this is a really cool medium that I have. This is a very, I'm very privileged to be able to reach people. Like social media is amazing. I mean, I'm 37. So I grew up without social media, thank God. But also, you know, the benefit is the ability to reach people all over the world. I think that's really great. And then I received a, I've received a few letters over the years that really impacted me. And one was from a parent. I don't want to, I'm not going to talk about it too much because then I'll start to cry and nobody likes that. Um, but it was a mom thanking me for like saving her son because she was like, I didn't know what to do. I felt helpless and hopeless for him. Um, and that was just to take the time to like put a letter in the mail. I don't know. It was just really impactful to me. And so I think that those things along the way have kind of, it's obviously a slow build. Like when I started my channel, I get, you know, 11 views <laughs> on a video and you'd be like, it's probably me just hitting refresh or my mom or, you know? Um, and so I think that, that back then I could never have imagined what it is now, but at the same time, it's all about that, like personal connection that I have with my community and their ability and their, it's they they just amaze me all the time with their ability to share their stories, them being vulnerable, the strength that they have to keep going and to talk to one another and assist one another. All of that is just, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both, I guess, to answer your question <laughs> succinctly. I love that story. I mean, like I could go on my own little tangent about um, with my own personal story and how people have helped me as well. And, and the amazing feeling that you get when, someone actually says, Hey, you've helped me. Like mm -hmm. that is just second to none. But what I'm curious about is how long has it actually taken you to build this audience to get this kind of message out there? I mean, since December of 2011 is when I started, but I feel like, uh, I mean, even from the beginning, we had a really close knit community. I remember like my first three really gung-ho community members and it was it was mags and uh punk and hazel we had these or um sorry punk and then um we had mondi those are their usernames anyway and so they they were there all the time answering questions you know i used to get through all the comments and all the questions and i really just think the the slow it's just a slow grow but from the beginning it's been impactful for me you know, I can only speak for myself uh, that it's really changed my life and changed what I thought a therapist could do or could be. And yeah, it, so nine years to get where we are today, but by the, the first year, I already felt like it was definitely worth the effort. And what kept you going during that, those low periods where you're only getting those 11 views, what kept you moving forward? The connection, the conversations. I thought that was really cool. Like those three uh, first community members that I remember so well, like Punk is from the UK, uh, Mags is from Germany, and Mondi is from another part in, I want to say UK or Wales. So it's like, again, that the realization that as someone in California, I wouldn't have access to even connect with those people or, or assist them in any way. And the ability to do that was, is, it's really, it's a privilege and it's been really great. So yeah. So it's always, I don't know. It just continues to amaze me, I guess. And what sort of, okay. So I want to ask you, you, you said that you're 37 right now, mm -hmm. which is still very, very young. I'm 24. What did you envision yourself being when you grew up? Like, what did you want to be? Did you want to be a family or a psychologist at all? 
Um, yes and no. It's funny because I kept I've kept journals for much of my life, which is kind of fun to go back. Also ridiculous. Like when you're a kid, you don't have much to share. You know, you're like, dear diary, today I went to grandma's house. You know, there's not much to really get into there. Um, but when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why, to be truthful, because that as an adult, even teenager, that was never in my mind. But when I was a kid, I wanted to live in a big city. I grew up in a really small town in the country. So I wanted to live in a big city. I wanted to wear a suit and have a briefcase that I took to work. And I talk about it a lot. And it's really funny because once I got older and started actually thinking about my career, it's always been psychology related. Um, when I was in middle schools, when I really started to become interested in psychology, we had like an intro to psych class you could take. And from, I was hooked like from then on. And I don't think I really knew exactly what angle I wanted to take until I started actually pursuing it. Because in the States, there's certain routes you can take to become, I don't know, you can become a psychologist, which for those of you who don't understand the system in the US, it's four years of undergrad and then four years of graduate school. And as someone who paid for all my own schooling, and it's very expensive in the States, I was like, I can't afford to do that. And they don't actually make any more money either. So the return on investment, you know, you have to consider all these things when you're figuring out what career path you want. So after taking my doing my four year undergrad and majoring in psychology and minoring in music, I sang in choir. I've always enjoyed it, um, but never to make money off of it, you know. So doing that, and then I took a year to just work in the field and see if it was something that I would enjoy. And I worked at this parenting or pregnant teen girl home. So it was for foster children who didn't have a family, who it was females who either had children or were pregnant. And it was super fulfilling, even though it was extremely exhausting and really trying at times. And at that point, I knew that I really wanted to pursue uh, becoming a therapist or a psychologist. And so I looked into my options and a licensed marriage and family therapist is one of really two main veins you can go into. You can become a social worker or a, an LMFT. And the difference is really social workers tend to, not always, but tend to focus on getting you things in your environment to make life happen for you. So like, do you need help assistance getting to and from appointments? Do you need to make sure that you have Medicare set up so you can pay for your medication and your doctor's appointments and all that? Not, not all social workers focus on that. You can spread out, but that's how what they're, the training mainly uh, focuses on. And then as an LMFT, we focus more on relationships. And that's always been much more of a passion of mine, relationship with ourselves, relationship with other people. Which I think is very, very fascinating. And I'll, we'll dive into in a moment, but I'm curious, did you ever think that you would be starting your own practice? And, and also, secondly, this, is, this might be a hard one. Have you found it difficult and hard being a therapist and hearing all of these like crazy mental health issues that people struggle with? Yeah, I mean, so I always knew I wanted to have a private practice. Yes, mainly because when you work inside of a clinic, because so for years, uh, for people who don't know my background, I worked for years in the eating disorder treatment center. That's where my passion for that began. I was actually still in graduate school, gaining my hours towards my licensure at that point, but it was super fulfilling and I, I loved that work. And there, there are benefits to working within a clinic. Like it's much easier to leave work at work because someone else is there taking over that role when you leave for your shift. Um, and so I, I always had a private practice at least a little bit. Even one of my first supervisors 
had me working in her private practice, like for a few hours a week. Cause she was like, it's really important that you build up kind of your own business aside from working in the hospitals and treatment centers. Um, many people don't realize that therapists usually work at least two, if not more jobs. We hold a lot of different things just because of, you know, uh, stress of having a private practice, ability to have health insurance from the company that you work for. You know, there's a lot of things you have to consider when you work for yourself. And so I always knew I want to have some form of a private practice. And yes, it, it is difficult at times to hear people's tough stories, but I have to be honest that I feel like I was made for it. Like I, I do think some people have it and some people don't. I've had other colleagues of mine think, or even uh, when I was in school, having other students feel overwhelmed immediately, like go into work, try to do it. And like, I can't do this work. It's too overwhelming. Like I'm crying. I I'm exhausted. And I've just never felt that way. It was very easy for me to, I, I mean, I also set myself up for success. I have different peer support groups. We talk about d- difficult cases and it's all confidential. And I have my own therapy that I've been in regularly for years and years and years. Um, And so I have all of those resources. And so it is in many ways easy for me to leave work at work. I'm I'm very big on boundaries and what I allow and don't allow. And I'm very communicative with my patients over the years about like, you can only call or text me if it's an emergency or if it is a change to scheduling. Other than that, it's going to have to wait till our session. And I think some of those tools and resources have allowed me to sustain over the years. But being online has been its own tricky thing too and opening yourself up to more, right? It's great to be able to reach more people, but then my self-care is even more important, especially being online because online has its own, takes its own toll, right? Because people can hate on you just because they want to, because they feel so bad about themselves. And because of essentially what I talk about online, I'm bound to find those people, right? And they're bound to find me. And so, yeah, it's, it's been tricky over the years, but I've definitely prioritized my own self-care and my own time off. And I'm still trying to manage the guilt of taking time, but it's getting better. Same here, don't worry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I know when you work for yourself, people think, oh, we don't have to have a boss and like, you don't have to get up. It's almost worse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you're more more accountable to yourself than somebody Mm -hmm. else, which is kind of, yeah, it's times 10, I think. Yes. Because then it's only you and you you can't blame anyone else but yourself. Yeah. And the buck stops with you, right? Like if I need to pay my rent, I know that I need to, you know, I need to make sure I get that email out or send that invoice or send that super bill to my patient or whatever. So yeah, it's a little bit different. I've I've had moments where I've forgotten something because you've had a massive day and it's almost like, oh crap. (laughs) Right. That's one. But when you're working with someone, that's like one less thing you have to worry about. Like you've only got a particular set of roles or jobs that you need to do but when you're working for yourself you have like the list just goes on and on and on yeah you wear all the hats right (laughs) they they say like oh do what you're passionate about but they don't tell you okay this is what's going to happen when you do work for yourself you're going to encounter a lot of I guess you could say fun moments. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, very, very true. Be very aware of that. But it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a, it's a, it's a bad thing. I think people are sort of, and I, I want to get your take on this, Katie, but people are sort of made for it, whereas other people aren't. Well, I think they feel more comfortable being their own boss. Like I feel comfortable with being my own boss. 
I don't mind working for somebody else, but I much prefer to be my own boss and have that responsibility and that accountability um, than, you know, be constantly on like messaged or contacted by a boss, if that makes sense at all. So I want to get yeah. your, your take on, on the same thing. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I definitely think some of us are made for it and some of us are not. Even in my own family, like my brother and I, I mean, we're very different personality wise in general. I think a lot of siblings are like that, but he is not an entrepreneur that he, he prefers to have a set amount of things he has to do. And then he just leaves. Like I remember talking to him cause I I've worked many jobs as I'm sure many people have over the years. Like if, for those who don't know as a therapist, even when you go through graduate school, so you have six years of education under your belt, you still don't get paid because, or you get paid, but like not much yeah. while you gather 3000 hours in the state of California to get licensed. So for many years, I worked a ton of different weird jobs. I was a, a waitress. I was a sales rep. I worked at this EAP program as part of their customer service. I mean, I did every job, good, bad, whatever. And I never liked it. And I don't mind. I don't mind having a boss. I, I think I work very well within team systems and things like that. However, I do appreciate the, the ability to, to boss myself and to know that if I have the energy and want to do more, I can. And if I don't think that this system works and it's not efficient, then I have the ability to change it. It's not these bureaucratical papers you have to send, like I, that movie Office Space from forever ago. And he's like, the TPS reports, ah, you know, and I, if anybody's worked in corporate America, you know how much time is wasted on stupid things like TPS reports. And so I have to agree with you, but I had talked to my brother about this because I was quitting my full-time job to do YouTube more and just have my private practice. And my brother was like, I don't understand. You have like good health insurance. Why would you, why would you quit? And I was like, it's Nick, his name's Nick. I was like, Nick, it's not fulfilling. And I just don't, I don't feel good about it anymore. It, I feel like it's limiting me. And he was like, well, the work and this, this will always stick with me. He's like, well, work or your job is just a way to pay for your life. And I was like, no, to me, it's different, right? My work is part of my life. I feel like we spend so much time working. I want it to be something that makes me feel good. And I feel passionate about, like it's giving something out into the world. And so, you know, and not for, for better, or for worse, right? He sees it one way. I see it another. And we actually need both of those people to make our world work. So, yeah. It's interesting how that actually does work out. Like mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned how each of us are different. But yet there's so much like we, we need it. <laughs> like yeah. we need that little, that person that sort of, they, they experience life differently to us and then we can learn from them, like what works for them and what works for us. Like we're all unique human beings, which I think is absolutely amazing thing. And it's, it's special, but I like how you mentioned sort of like work does not necessarily mean that it defines you as a person. And I think that that's a, a very important thing to sort of uh, illustrate is because what a lot of people do, and this, this happens with mental health, and I, I don't know if you've experienced this with some of your clients, but when they, the reason why a lot of people actually feel miserable is because they're in the wrong sort of job and they feel like mm -hmm. their job is part of them, like they must do it in order to sort of fulfill their purpose. And I felt that way for many, many years. 
And then when I finally did the work and it was very, very tough, it was like breaking my, my mental barrier that I had kept telling myself for many, many years. When I finally broke, it was like this whole new world had been opened up to me. And I realized that we have to start learning to distinguish between I am versus I do. Mm -hmm. And who you are is your values, your beliefs, your character traits, your experiences in life. That all serves your job. It doesn't mean that you are your job (laughs) at all. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's very, very important. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Katie, is mental health in in the first place for people is it actually possible to get rid of all these mental health issues or are we just all stuck with mental health problems in society for the rest of our life (laughs) should we just give up now yeah no um (laughs) i think the thing that's interesting that i think a lot of people no, I don't know. I don't even know if I want to say they don't want to hear it, but I think it's difficult to comprehend and accept. And the truth is that we have all the tools and answers that we need to feel better. We often just a don't remember where we put them, or we didn't even knew, know that we had them. No one told us, right? And so we live in this kind of denial stage of like survival. I think so many of us get comfortable just like white knuckling through life, mm. and. I think that's why a lot of people are like, well, I've been depressed since I was 16 and I'm 50 now and nothing has helped. And I hear that a lot online. And part of me always wants to ask like, well, were you ready to change? Or, you know, what did you think change was going to look like? Because I can't tell you how it not as often now anymore, but back when I first started, a lot of people thought that going to a therapist meant that the therapist would fix you and that then things would get better. Right. And part of that, I can see part of that is kind of true that a therapist offers assistance, insight, and tools to help you help yourself, yeah. you know? And so the the true short answer is, yes, we can overcome, I believe, any mental illness. Some are more detrimental to our ability to function than others. And that just depends on the person. It's not even mental illness related. People would always want to say like, oh, schizophrenia is more severe than depression. And I would beg to differ because it really depends on the person and how they experience it. And so some people are going to need medication full time or more of a more intensive treatment plan or treatment team, meaning more than one mental health professional, you know, in your little toolbox that you use and you see and you, you know, take care of yourself that way. But I do believe that with the right help and with the right motivation, which is the trickiest part, is that we have to want to get better, which I know a lot of people are like, well, I feel terrible. Of course, I want to get better. It's not that simple. Like, I'll be honest, I've been in therapy off and on since I was 15 years old. And that work is some of the toughest work I've done in my life. Like to to acknowledge the fact that A, I'm a people pleaser. I say sorry too much. And I struggle to take a responsibly and like empowered take up space. I have this difficulty with that personally. And to acknowledge that and to recognize where it came from and how it's grown and to try to change it is really uncomfortable and really difficult. And even just identifying that that's what's going on takes a while, right? And so I think all of this work people assume is going to be like, 
boom, snap the fingers. I went into therapy for six months. It should be better. And we have all these ideas about what that timeline looks like and what recovery looks like. And I, I'm just really here to tell people it does get better with right help, but the biggest proponent of that getting better is you being open to admitting your role in it. And that's hard, right? A lot of us struggle to admit when we're unhappy and when we're lashing out, like if I'm yelling at my husband, you know, maybe at most 40% is something he did, but 60% is me and my inability to communicate what's actually going on for me. I'm just wanting to lash out because I feel X, Y, Z, and I'm not, I don't have a good outlet for that yet. And so I think, yeah, I could go on and on, but the truth is that yes, we can get better, but we have to be motivated for that change. And it's also okay to say, you know what, right now I'm not. Because I had patients over the years come in to see me. Then after a few months, I all say something to the effect of like, you know, we're, we're just not making any progress. And, and I'm just curious, like where you're at. And a lot of the times I'll get the response of like, well, I came in to see you. That took a lot of effort. And like, I'm here. I'll say, yeah, that's just the first step. I know it's a hard step, but now the real work begins and we'll have a conversation about whether or not they're really ready for that. And sometimes they're not. And I'm like, Hey, you know, take a few months off or even just a week, two weeks and give me a call. And let's just see where you're at because you don't, there's no expectations here. You don't have to get better at a certain timeline within a certain amount, you know, but you have to want it. Mm. I think that's a very important point. And when you said that one question kept coming to mind, when you do see your patients that sort of, like they might not want to actually open up about their struggles or their mental health issues in the first place. How do you create this comfortable environment for them to actually share and open up? Like what sort of questions would you ask them? Mm, it's tricky. Everybody's a little different. Um, in, in therapy, when you're in school, they call it like creating a holding environment, which means where they feel it's almost like a, a trust fall. They feel safe knowing you're, you can contain it. You can hold it. It's not going to be overwhelming and we're not going to have an emotional response as a result. And so part of it, I think, is giving them opportunities to open up around certain scenarios or situations. So let's say someone comes in to see me. The first appointment's always a little tough because you're asking more about history. You're like, you know, have you seen a therapist before and, and how did that go for you? Or have you been on medication? Are you on medication now? How is that working? And so you have a lot of questions about past experiences and where they're at now and what brought them in. But once you kind of move past that, a lot of it's just asking like, something to the effect of, let's say you came in and you said that you were having panic attacks at work or something and you didn't know how to get a hold of it and it was debilitating. And I would ask like, well, when did this start? And has anybody else in your life ever, you know, had a panic attack? And I would just leave things kind of open-ended, asking questions, not yes or no's, but more along the lines of like, how does it feel in your body? Have you ever, is there a buildup? You know, what do we think is happening? And just leaving open-ended responses from you to allow you to give me more information or to notice if you're shutting down and you're cutting it off because so often people aren't able to be open because they're worried about what I'm going to think about them or they're worried about uh, how it sounds or maybe they've never said it out loud and that in itself in and of itself is scary and I I've talked with my audience a lot about the fact that I feel like being a therapist is like trying to break into someone's mental house and like Okay, so you tried to go in the front door, but they don't, they didn't let you in the front door. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go around to that weird back bedroom. Maybe that window I can jimmy that open and get in. And you're just trying to ask different questions to see which way they'll let you in. 
And sometimes it's uh, like when it comes to trauma, for instance, I usually ask outside of the traumatic experience itself. Like, let's say we knew something happened when we were 14. I'm like, okay, well, let's remember back to when you were like 12. Okay. Think about the year in school that you'd be, let's say that's like, you know, fifth or sixth grade or whatever. Uh, tell me if you, who was your best friend at the time? And so we start with something that isn't so emotionally charged or upsetting because we'll be more apt to get in that way. And then once we're in, then we can see how far we can go without pushing people too far. Uh, Therapy is a lot of like this uh, push pull kind of like, okay, you're letting me in this much. Okay. I hit a wall again. Okay. That's off limits for now. Let's try over here. And you're kind of like expanding this ring of information that they're willing to share at a pace that challenges them, but doesn't overwhelm them. And it's, it's like its own art kind of. Yeah. But it's, it's a lot of, um, a lot of validating feelings, mm. a lot of understanding and, and not assuming, you yeah. know, and no judgments either. It's just a lot of that. Have you found it hard to not judge, not to assume? Not, the judgment doesn't come quick for me. Luckily, I'm not very judgmental in general. Um, I, I don't know if it's being a therapist for so long because teenage me would probably be like, mm, you know, but adult <laughs> me is, is like, oh, interesting. Tell me more about that. You know, I'm curious. And I always, I don't know, I say this to my husband a lot and he doesn't always agree, but I'm like, I believe in the good in people. Like, I think that truly people don't mean to be hurtful or hateful. I, I just believe that. Yeah. And he's like, well, there's some dirt bags out there. I'm like, I think someone hurt them. I think something happened. It's, it's more of a, a trauma response. It's not a real personality trait. Um, and so I don't, the judgment doesn't, isn't hard, but the assumptions, I do have to check myself because that you can do without even realizing it. Like just, so I ask a lot of questions and I, I always tell my audience, I'm like, I'm always just very curious. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting, uh, you seem to be very upset about that. I'm, I'm interested. Like what, what came up for you? Tell me more about that. You know, even if they're mad at me, I'm like, mm-hmm. what was it that I said that was so triggering? You know, I'd like to learn. So I don't do it again. Tell me more. Um, yeah, assumptions are a little trickier, but judgment's easy to kind of, you know, we recognize it when it comes up for, or I do, I'm like, Oh, that's not helpful. I always say that as well. Like I'm, I'm naturally a curious person. And Mm -hmm. when I was younger, I would always like be very, so quick to judge. It was like, it was a learned behavior. I I noticed, Mm -hmm. but for a lot of people that I love how you mentioned trauma, but for a lot of people that do sort of, they don't want to, they're bad people. They've either been hurt that they are conscious about that hurt or they're unconscious about it, yet they, they, they don't even know that it's there. They've, they've actually blocked it for mm-hmm. a long period of time and yet their body is reacting that way because I noticed that's what happened to me. Like for a very long period of time, uh, I walked around in this dazed and almost like confused from trauma that I experienced when I was six mm-hmm. and I didn't really know how to deal with it. And then when, it, when it, like I had these like little flashbacks of the traumatic event and I'd be like, Oh, I'll just put that away. Yeah. Not I, now. Not, yeah. no, I don't want to deal with that now. And then when it finally actually came up, I was like, okay, now I've got to face this, this dragon in front of me. Now I've got to try and beat it. Whereas if I had have probably seen somebody earlier on and actually learned to deal with it, 
because I realized that it was affecting a lot of my relationships. I didn't even know it was that. But when I actually dealt with it, then I started to see that it was actually me dealing with it was helping not just mm-hmm. me, but it was helping the flow on of my relationship as a result. And it was Yeah, t- of course. So I love yeah. how you mentioned that. <laughs> well, no, but it's it's really I think it's important for people to hear because so often we're reacting from something that we haven't identified yet. And that's very common, especially with regard to trauma. And when we're children, I mean, most people don't recall anything before the age of five. It's just neurologically, we don't form long-term memory. And for better, for worse, right? So if something bad happened to us when we were children, we actually can't recall it, but but our body remembers, right? Like there's an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score. I highly recommend it. And um, the author, he talks about like how your body remembers and like, it, and it's it's a very intense books always tell people like take it in chunks let yourself digest it it's it's a lot but I think it's really healing and very validating for that experience um and of course it helps our relationships like people especially online talk a lot about the harm that's come that they've felt from people who are narcissists but the thing about narcissists is yes they are very harmful and I'm not telling anybody that you don't have a right to feel mad sad hateful whatever but narcissism grows out of abuse and the inability to soothe that inner child. So we put up this really tough wall so much that they, again, that wouldn't even, they wouldn't even know. They don't even recognize they're doing it. They don't even understand why they act this way, but any small chip away at this tough armor we've put on feels like a a horrific discretion. Like someone is coming in. I have to push out. I have to fight. This is not safe for me. They might see the real me. And so they do all this stuff to like keep people away. And yeah, it's a lot of, it's just recognizing that. And I think for a lot of us, we just need to, and this sounds really woo woo, very therapisty, but it's like acknowledging that inner child that we all have that feels very sad and very hurt and very uncared for, unloved or not enough. It's like recognizing that part of ourselves that we all have. Again, it's, 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 a, it's a shared human experience is like noticing that person and that little kid of us and having a conversation and helping it feel the things that we all need, which is I belong, I am enough, and I am loved. Mm-hmm. And if we can come to that understanding, I think a lot of the hate in the world would kind of, you know, come down. I agree with you 100%. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I'm curious, what is the one question that each and every one of us should be asking ourselves on a consistent basis? Mm. I think this is something I've been doing lately and it's really helped is when we have an emotional response, good or bad, ask yourself, what am I trying to communicate with this? So when I'm doing a behavior, if that behavior is coming up behind my husband, hugging him from the back or calling my friend and telling her how much I miss her. Consider what you're trying to communicate with that. Is it loneliness that I'm trying to communicate? Is it connection that I really need? If I'm lashing out and I'm shouting at someone, what is it, what's really going on? If I take a beat and think, what am I trying to communicate with this? It could even be, uh, for many people, I know alcohol and drug addiction has been a big problem this year. And because we're stuck at home and people have relapsed and people who maybe didn't have a problem now have a problem. So every time you want to take a drink or you want to spend money and shop online or gamble or whatever it is, consider what is it I'm trying to communicate with this? What, what is this behavior trying to say? And that's really been helpful for me because 
so often we just numb out with behaviors instead of tapping in. And if we take a minute to tap in, sometimes we can recognize that, oh, I'm just trying to buy that sweatshirt or new top because I feel lonely or because I feel angry or because I feel hurt. Um, and if we can instead communicate that to the person that could maybe fix it a little bit, help mend a relationship, or maybe that's ourselves, it's a relationship with ourselves. If we can just take a minute, I think that that really helps us all. Mm. It's a very important question. And um, for those people that are struggling at the moment with, I guess, an eating disorder at the moment, firstly, I think we need to understand what causes an eating disorder in the first place. And then how can we, because I, from experience, I struggle with an eating disorder. I still have it, like that little demon that tries to mm-hmm. get out and cause havoc. I still have that within me, but I'm always curious from a psychologist's point of view, what do you think causes someone to go through an eating disorder? Is it uh, a traumatic experience that brings it on or is it something more to it than that? It can be trauma. Trauma is by and large, probably the most common that I see and uh, un- unprocessed trauma to be even more specific. So trauma that's rooted in childhood, like for instance, a good example, maybe to help people kind of better understand is like, I had a patient many years ago who was sexually abused as a child. And the abuser had said something about how nice and squishy she was, something about her body being squishy, soft, something like that. And she internalized that and lost a bunch of weight so that she was no longer soft or squishy. So therefore, then I won't be fall victim to this again. It's protective. Okay. Then I've had people who, um, for instance, uh, I had this patient years ago whose dad was just very strange about food and would have them all watch him eat something that they'd made for him. Like if he'd been gone on a work trip, he'd always wanted brownies when he got home, but nobody else could have them. It was only him. And that's a very strange relationship with food, right? And for children to to work together as a family to create something and then not enjoy it together. uh, There was a lot of, I I haven't earned it or I don't deserve it. And so exercise addiction was big with her because it was like, I have to earn the things that I eat versus my body needs nourishment. And so I give it, you know, I nourish my body the same way I nourish my brain. And so I, I give those few examples just to kind of let you see how eating disorders are truly just coping skills. They're when we don't have any other tools, remember I talked about therapy, giving you a tool, a toolbox and different tools, but when we don't know where those tools are and no one's shown us what they look like or how to use them, let's say you saw a screwdriver for the first time and you've never seen one before, would you automatically know what it does? No, you wouldn't know how to use it. You, well, what good is this? Right. And so we have to think about that when it comes to psychological tools is that if none of our parents, cause a lot of people, you know, parents do do their best, but their best sometimes is terrible. And so they maybe don't even have their own tools. And the way that they cope is through, who knows, drinking, under eating, overeating, shouting, you know, there can be a lot of unhealthy coping skills that we learn, but we don't learn any healthy ones. And so if we've never been taught or shown how to cope with things that are out of our control, which spoilers, almost everything in our life is out of our control. So if we don't know how to cope with that feeling, and we don't know how to find stability in our life, then we use food. Because a lot of times we think, oh, the one thing I can control is myself, which is to some respects true. 
Mm. However, so many things in our environment change what we can and can't do anyways. And, you know, uh, but we focus in on our bodies. So for better, for worse, right. You know, that that's why drugs and alcohol, people want to numb out that way. But my people who overeat and undereat do it for the same reasons. I think a lot of people assume eating disorders are all people who are underweight. And that is not true. Binge eating disorder is, I believe the most common eating disorder that we see, but it's just not talked about in the same way. It's just a commercial and a marketing campaign to lose weight January 1st, get it together. And we need to treat it what as, you know, treat it for what it is, which is an eating disorder and just trying to numb out. People want to be overly full. So you can't think of anything else except how full you feel, right? Or you want to be so hungry. All you can think about is running those random calculations that make no sense to anybody else, but you and your eating disorder. Um, yeah, and it's only think about that. And so for anybody out there who thinks that, you know, it's only that it's vain, it's a vanity thing, and they need to just eat. Um, I would encourage you to, to consider what I'm saying, because it's much, much more than that. Yeah. And, um, I can, from a personal point of view, I struggled with people telling me that, I looked great. I had mm-hmm. had the eight pack. So what I would do is I continue to exercise and I wouldn't eat enough. So this was in 2017 leading into 2018. So I I would literally starve my body. I would exercise over and above for over two hours, but I wouldn't feed my body the nutrients that it needed. And the more weight that I lost, the more defined that my body got, the less fat I had on me, people started to notice and said, mm-hmm. originally, you look great. So I was like, psychologically, fantastic. So I'm going to keep going and possibly I can get even better. Who knows? I'm going to test this out. But I went too far and I didn't, I, I didn't stop to really understand what I was creating in that moment. And uh, it ended up leading me into hospital for 10 days. Mm-hmm. And an immense amount of pain, <laughs> all my sure. dignity, all my dignity that I had cherished for such a long time went out the window. So I realized that it just was not worth it. What I was putting into it may have been or seemed worth it at the time, but in hindsight, it was bliss. It was not worth it at all. So yeah. I think, and even, even to this day when I, it never goes away first and foremost, uh, when when you have it, you got to learn how to manage it. So, over the over that period of time, I have I still exercise. I still uh, take care of my body, but now my mindset is completely different to what it was back then. To my relationship with food, and I personally think this is my personal opinion: the calorie is one of the worst worst inventions known to man because what our brain does is it starts to do the math. And then when we have a bad relationship with food, we do the the bad math on that food and how it's going to impact our body. So we're told we need X amount of calories in in our body per day, not including exercise, for example. And then so if we want to lose weight, we're told reduce the amount of calories. So it's an easy, easy math equation. I'm just not going to eat it much. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh boy. <laughs> but you don't, it doesn't take into consideration bone density, muscle mass, like BMI is such a crock of shit. I hate it. And it really frustrates me and calories are so useless. It's not necessary to track. Um, I know people will argue against that and be like, but that's how I sustain. I think that's disordered eating. You know, you're on a, we're on a path towards eating disorder behavior. And yeah, to your example, like your personal example, I would argue like the eating disorders was a way for you to get connection. Yeah. Right. A lot of people, Oh, it's attention seeking. I'm like, attention is something all humans need. And it's actually connection that we're desiring. And that that attention, people saying like, you look great, made you feel connected. People notice me. I'm important. Again, back to like our core beliefs of like, I'm, I belong. Belonging is a huge, a huge pull for us. And I think that wanting to fit in, like one of my patients years ago, um, probably my youngest patient I'd seen with a severe eating disorder, she was 11. And it was because she wanted to fit in with this, the cool girls. And they had mentioned that she didn't have a six pack, which I mean, 11 years old, like who, what, but she, it was her goal then. So she did all these little workouts on her phone and things she'd looked up on YouTube and, you know, and she was doing all this stuff because she wanted to fit in and they all talked about having six packs. And I mean, it sounds so silly. I think a lot of people might think, Oh, but that's, that's just child stuff. And like, well, no, because she wanted to belong. And she wanted to have connection. And we all know that we want that. Like, if we think about it, it's important. We just all do different things to, to belong. And she hadn't been through uh, puberty yet. She hadn't been through adolescence. Mm-hmm. So no. she's, she's really creating for herself. And this is something what I experienced um, going through depression at 14 was your brain is still developing. You're still forming ideas about the world. And if you're having that experience, that traumatic experience at that age, your opinion and your viewpoint of the world and how you go about life from then on is going to be skewed because that's what you're going to be thinking about. So I think it's important, this is from a personal point of view, for a lot of young people, it starts there. So we've got to go back to that and say, well, how can we help these young people that are struggling with these negative aspects of life, which are with, with the advent of social media. Like I, I'm only 24, but I grew up initially with no social media yeah. and it was the best thing ever. But then the moment social media started to creep in, that's when you start to notice the, the negative aspects. It's like this pollution that we're giving our mental brains and we're literally creating a world full of depressed, anxious, um, all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's a couple, I have a couple thoughts about that because I agree with you 100%. I think uh, the first thought I have about social media is if we consider like you grew up mostly without social media, I grew up, I, Facebook came around when I was in college, I think I was a freshman in college in like 2002 And that was when Facebook was what it was. So that's like the beginning, right? So growing up, we're usually only around other kids and people who live in our communities, right? And if we live in a community that tends to be that our parents usually work and make around the same amount of money, because that's how they can afford an apartment or home or condo in that area. And we go to the same kind of schools. And so 
our bubble of who we're interacting with and the feedback that we get from people are people who are pretty similar to us in some fashion like that. Social media means that I can see people who have completely different lives for better, for worse. Right. But then I'm as someone who's online, just like you, right. I get feedback from people who don't know me, who've never met me in real life and who actually don't know my circumstance. And I don't know theirs either. And that's a very unhealthy feedback loop to be caught in. And I think for everybody, it's very unhealthy to get into arguments or conversations about big issues or even personal, have people judge your photos or your videos or whatever, when they don't know, they frankly don't know. And it's hard for us to do that because we're used to getting feedback from people who actually know us. And that's what I believe we're actually, we're programmed for, right? Neurologically speaking, I don't think we're supposed to be taking feedback from millions of people every day. So there's that component of it. And I think that that, that's, you know, part of why I think it is kind of, it's unhealthy and it is healthy for children to grow up without, without it. And I I want parents to recognize that, especially now, because kids growing up with it from birth, right? Like, like if I, if I had children, they would have never known a time without social media. And that like, that is mind blowing to me, you know? It's kind of like, for young people, I believe this, we are so overloaded with information. So it's sort of making us tired. And mm-hmm. when we're tired, we're vulnerable to attacks. Oh, 100%. We're in, I do dialectical behavior therapy, DBT therapy, mm-hmm. which is really just imagine cognitive behavioral therapy with a little bit of mindfulness and emotion regulation. And, and those are really just fancy words for saying that we want to make sure we're not emotionally vulnerable. So sleeping, eating, all of those things. If, if I haven't eaten, I do get hangry and I'm not my best self, you know, and you catch me, you can catch me in a bad moment. And you know, and I think everybody feels that way. Our defenses are down. Right. And, and that's why along with limiting young children's like access to social media, I think is key. But the real thing is, is emotional education. Like, I don't think I mean, I know my parents didn't help me learn how to communicate what was going on inside for me. And I think if we can do that for children, they'll have a a stronger sense of self and an understanding of like why they're responding the way they're responding. Cause that's been helpful to me as an adult. Like, like I said, what am I trying to communicate with this? Like it's nice. You can ask even children, toddlers can tell you sometimes and you're like, you seem frustrated. What happened? And they can tell you. I was mad because you didn't, you said I was going to get the popsicle and they did it and they can express what's going on. Why am I upset? And if we can teach children to do that more and more as they grow up, they'll have more emotional intelligence. And I think less anxiety, less depression, because I mean, I always talk about like, you know, depression is just anger in and anxiety is just worry, frustration in. It's the same. We just take it out on ourselves, you know, kind of spins around inside of us. And there's good stress and there's bad stress. A lot of Mm -hmm. us, we take on the bad stress and then that causes Mm -hmm. more anxiety. It's like this massive flow on effect that we are almost unaware of, or we, we can be aware of it, but we don't do anything with it. We just allow it to fester and, and simmer under the surface. And then when it like blows, it blows up like enormously um and uh, this is such a great conversation i'm loving this Uh, (laughs) but i want to be be very respectful of your time katie but 
a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. Are yeah, you, not at all. Are you okay? A guide to caring for your mental health. Um, where can people buy this book first and foremost? And secondly, why did you write it? Yeah, you can find the book anywhere books are sold. Amazon, uh, any bookstore, Barnes and Noble, you know, any of the thing. It depends on where you live, but pretty much anywhere books are sold, you can find it online somewhere. Um, I wrote it because I think a lot of people might over my time being online, I think most people don't know what they don't know. So it's like, we don't even know where to start with questions about mental health because no one's ever talked about it in a real way. And we've for many, many years thought that people go to therapy when something's really wrong with them. Like, Oh, there's all this judgment, right. Versus, Hey, I do all this stuff, take care of my physical health. Maybe because my brain is the hard drive running my entire body, maybe I should take care of that also. And there's still this, this judgment around that. And I feel like the more information we can have out there for people, like I, I put videos out online, obviously, each and every week. Um, and even I have a podcast, Ask Katie Anything, where I answer all sorts of people's questions. But I do think that books are another you know, powerful way to reach people and a medium that maybe they can digest it more easily because they can read a page or two and then stop. They can make notes in the margins, you know, they can use the book to however they need to use it, you know, skipping chapters, going back and forth. It's really just a where to start, what to ask. Mm. I explain the difference of like a therapist to a psychiatrist, to a psychologist, to who would you see and how could you ask for the help that you needed? And what's a counselor and what's a licensed counselor? You know, um, how, how is depression treated? What are toxic relationships? How do we communicate more clearly? How do we avoid those like communication blunders of like keeping score and stuff like that? So it's it's a lot to contain in one book, but I think it's, my hope is that it's just like a, it's a start for people. And I have, I'll have another book coming out this September, September, 2021. And it's all about trauma. It's called Traumatized. Ooh. And that one's, I mean, I've already written it. It's just in the editorial phase at this point, but it's, it's kind of ironic because we, we put the proposal together in 2019 wow. <laughs> and I, and I had to edit a lot of the content to kind of try to capture 2020 and mm -hmm. some bits of it and even 2021, right. Things aren't always uh, changing yet. So it's, it, it was a really interesting because I had to learn a lot myself. I had to read a ton of research and books to prepare because I'm not a trauma specialist but hopefully it helps people again, meet them where they're at and helps them kind of understand what trauma is, what's PTSD, what's complex PTSD, how do they differ? How do they feel? Stuff like that. Dissociation, all that stuff. Well, I can't wait to actually read it when it does come out. Uh, mm -hmm. it sounds like a very, very interesting deep dive. And I think I could relate to if, if it's anything close to what we've been talking about today, I think I can relate to a lot of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, um, I also know what it's like being in the editorial stage because I recently finished my first book. Um, Congratulations. I, it's a lot of work. Uh, tell me about it. It took me two years to write the damn thing. Yeah, it's, like a, <laughs> it's a labor of love for sure. Oh, uh, 100%. This one in particular, it was so hard, not from the standpoint of the content, but me actually going deep in and revisiting a lot of the stuff. And it was tough. It was tough to revisit it and actually sit there and write it out and say, well, do I really want to say this? Do I really want to get this vulnerable for people to sort of see me and 
I was like, yeah, yeah. I do because hopefully it's going to help somebody. Hopefully the trauma that I experienced, hopefully that's going to help somebody else. It's not just yeah. a hard read. There's also lessons that I learned and strategies to become better. And mm -hmm. I titled the book, I can say this out loud, uh -huh. but I titled it The Path of an Eagle. So, Oh, I love it. Yeah. Can't wait to read it. Yeah. I'll make sure to send you a coffee when it does come out. Hopefully it goes in line with, with your book too. So yeah. that'd, that'd be great. <laughs> I know that would it'd be fortuitous, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Um, one final question for you, Katie, if you don't mind. So no, this is a hypothetical one. So just imagine with me that you have been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. I don't think it'd be too hard because you've got a YouTube channel. <laughs> but um, just imagine that they've, they've got it and they put it together for you on your 100th birthday and they've shown it to you. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Mm, that's tricky. I guess, I mean, not for the sake of being, you know, like predictable, I guess, or I don't know, but it's or something that's overused, but it's like a life well lived. I think there's so much of my, of my world and my life that is online, but there's so much that isn't. Yeah. And I, I'd want it to represent both of those things because I think a lot of people assume just because I'm a therapist online that like I wear that hat all the time and I'm just that way all day long. And that's just not true. You know, M most of my life is not lived online. And I hope that the video showed my, my compassion for other people, my loyalty, like I'm fiercely loyal to people that I care about. And yeah. And that also, I think there's a, an important message that I hope people, especially younger people starting out is that like, if you want, want something, you can do it. And it's, it's worth the effort, you know? Mm. I feel like that's a great way to, to end that conversation. Katie, thank you so much for your advice, your wisdom and your story today and for coming on the Storybox podcast. Where can people find you and connect with you more? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, they can find me anywhere on social media. It's just Katie Morton, K-A-T-I-M-O-R-T-O-N. I release videos on my Katie Morton channel every Monday. And then my podcast channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter because I have a podcast with my husband entitled that where we just we just talk nonsense. But on that podcast channel, I also have Ask Katie Anything. And you can find that you know audio version as well, but that's video and audio. And yeah, find me on social media. I'm very friendly. I do my best to get back to everybody and, you know, respond. But if you don't hear from me, the audience is there and the community is there to offer their insight and support as well. I have to second the, the fun videos. They're, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, thank you so much, Katie, for your time today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope that people are helped by everything that you've said today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I don't like this part because it means, sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the Storybox on any podcast platform. It's that easy. 
If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.